Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer, podcast host and producer, and I'm very pleased to be bringing you a discussion with two experts on the subject of glaucoma. Glaucoma is a group of diseases that damage the eye's optic nerve and can result in vision loss. It is the second leading cause of blindness worldwide. Open-angle glaucoma, the most common form, results in increased eye pressure. There are often no early symptoms, which is why 50% of people with glaucoma don't even know they have the disease, which highlights the importance of medical education around the subject, such as this podcast. Throughout this episode, we will be exploring risk factors, family screening protocols and management of paediatric glaucoma, how to improve patient adherence to glaucoma medications, surrogate markers and ways to predict the progression of glaucoma, and the current options for optic nerve protection. Before we get started, a few housekeeping notes. This medical education activity is supported by Beatrice. Now, providing us with their insights and expertise today, I am delighted to introduce two experts within this field. The first is Francesca Cordero, who's a professor and consultant ophthalmologist at Imperial College in London and UCL, and also the director of the clinical trials unit at ICOG. Professor Cordero, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much, George. Great to be with you and uh, looking forward to uh, having a discussion with Andrew. Absolutely. That also brings us to our next guest. We are also joined by Dr. Andrew Tatham, who is a consultant at Princess Alexandra Eye Pavilion, Edinburgh. Dr. Tatham is recognised as one of Europe's leading glaucoma specialists and is a member of the European Glaucoma Society or EGS Executive Committee. Dr. Tatham, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Thanks very much, George. It's really nice to be with you. I'm really looking forward to the discussion we're having today. Yes, I mean, very important subject. We're going to be discussing glaucoma as a whole. So I think it makes sense to start pre-diagnosis. With this in mind, what are the most common ocular and non-ocular risk factors for glaucoma? Professor Cordero, I'll start with you, please. I think the biggest risk factor is intraocular pressure. And this has been established through at least four or five landmark studies where it has been very definitively shown that control of intraocular pressure leads to a reduction in visual field loss. The other sorts of risk factors that are routinely used would be the family history, especially a first degree relative with glaucoma, um, and vascular disease, this is the sort of going into the type of a migraine where you have people with vasospastic disease or a, a reno type phenomenon, often associated with normal tension glaucoma. But there is also atherosclerotic type of diseases, which can be associated with glaucoma as well. Dr. Tatham? Yeah, the most common type of glaucoma in Europe, at least, is open angle glaucoma. And this affects about 3% of people over the age of 40. So it's a really common condition. And in fact, it's probably the most common neurodegenerative condition of all. Um, age is one of the most important risk factors um, because the prevalence of glaucoma increases as we age. And if we make it to 90, there's about a 1 in 10 chance that we'll have glaucoma. Um, and of course, Francesca's mentioned intraocular pressure, and that's very, very important. Um, and some people confuse glaucoma and intraocular pressure as being synonymous, but they're, they're different. Um, if you ask someone to define what glaucoma is, they'll often say it's a condition with raised pressure inside the eye. 
But that isn't quite true because glaucoma is actually the optic neuropathy, the optic nerve damage. Um, and this tends to cause a progressive loss of visual field. Um, a normal pressure in the eyes is between about 10 to 21 millimeters of mercury. Um, so if you have high pressure, you're, you're at increased risk of developing glaucoma, but you don't necessarily have it yet. You just have high pressure. You just have ocular hypertension. And some people have have low pressure and develop glaucoma because their optic nerve is fragile and is not able to withstand a pressure that might be normal for other people. So there are other things that can contribute to damage to the optic nerve, inc including poor blood flow to the nerve. Um, and that, but these things are a little bit harder to modify. And it's really the intraocular pressure that we focus on when treating the disease at the moment. So in terms of risk factors, we, we have raised pressure in the eye and older age. And there are other risk factors within the eye as well. So being short-sighted or, or myopic, that's, that's a risk factor for open angle glaucoma. Um, the other type of glaucoma is angle closure glaucoma, and, and that's more common in people who are the opposite, who are hypermetropic or, or long-sighted. And these people tend to have quite small eyes where the drainage angle inside the eye is very crowded. And this can lead to sort of closure of, of the drainage channels in the eye, a little bit like a plug going into a plug hole, um, increasing the pressure in the eye. And this can sometimes cause the eye to be painful and red with blurry vision and a headache, that, you know, that acute angle closure that people might see who work in the emergency department. So generally, we've mentioned raised pressure, myopia, um, and age as risk factors, but there are also some other factors inside the eye, ocular risk factors. And there's a condition called pseudoexfoliation. And this is where you get little white flaky material deposited inside the eye and the flaky material can cause an obstruction to the drainage channels and putting the pressure up. Um, and then another risk factor, perhaps important to mention, is the cornea and, and the, the, th the thickness of the cornea. So the, the cornea is the window into the eye. And when we measure the pressure, we're measuring the pressure through the cornea using either a puff of air device or, or a device that comes into contact with the surface of the eye which is called applanation tonometry. And if you, if you have a very thin cornea, you can have a falsely um, uh, low pressure reading. So the pressure can actually be higher than we're, than we're measuring. So there, there are quite a few different risk factors. And another is family history, of course. And having a first degree family member who has glaucoma increases the odds of, of you developing glaucoma by about threefold. So it's really important, particularly for those that have a family history of glaucoma to have their eyes checked regularly. Um, and the, the, the risk of glaucoma is also higher um, due to genetic differences amongst individuals. And the genetics of glaucoma are actually very complicated. There's a very small proportion of people, about 6%, who have a, a single genetic mutation that can explain their disease. And the most common of these is a mutation in the myosilin gene. And if you have a mutation in this gene, you can have a buildup of abnormal protein in the, in the trabecular meshwork which can damage um, the, and lead to high pressure inside the eye. But for most of us who develop glaucoma, it's, it's more complex. The genetics are more complex. And there's actually over 100 loci that have been identified from the UK uh, Biobank, um, which have been linked to high pressure in the eye and into, in, in glaucoma. So it's complex. It's, it's quite a complex interplay of factors that can lead to, um, and increase the risk of glaucoma. Is glaucoma screening, for example, for those with a family history of glaucoma, worthwhile, do you think, uh, Professor Cordero? Well, I have a very strong feeling about this. In fact, I'm very passionate 
that I think the only way of identifying and treating disease early is to use things for glaucoma screening. And I think that a family history of glaucoma is a very good method of identifying, identifying someone who's at risk. Um, and it's something that we, you know, currently use anyway in uh, with opticians and optometrists. Uh, so I think it is very worthwhile. Uh, anything to add, Dr. Satham? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, uh, glaucoma is usually asymptomatic and, and we can actually lose quite a large amount of our visual field and still feel completely fine. And, and that's one of the great dangers. Um, and um, the reason for that, of course, is that the changes in glaucoma tend to happen very slowly over time. And one eye can compensate for the other eye and you can turn your head and your eyes and adapt in part to these slow changes in the visual field. So we need to detect glaucoma in people who are asymptomatic. And, and really the best way to do that is through case finding in the community. Um, but it probably isn't practical in most settings to screen an entire population. So we tend to focus our efforts on those at highest, of highest risk. And different countries have different ways of doing this. Um, in the UK, um, people can have free eye examinations with their optometrists in the community, and that's a really useful way of detecting glaucoma at an early stage. And um, we, we need to remember that late diagnosis is one of the major risk factors for blindness. So um, we people who have a family history of glaucoma, who are myopic, who are older, they're the people that should re we should really target with our, with our um, case finding. Um, and also just raise the awareness amongst the general public about what glaucoma is and the importance of having regular eye health checks, even if you feel completely fine and even if you don't wear glasses. Yeah, I mean, the awareness is one of the reasons that we're doing this very podcast, you know. And uh, how about paediatric uh, glaucoma? I wonder if, they're, if the management is, is different compared to adults? So um, I'm not a paediatric glaucoma specialist, but I would say that it is different. And it starts from the very earliest uh, congenital glaucoma, where patients get a big hypothalamus, but also the treatment of that sort of glaucoma needs to be done as soon as possible to preserve the vision. The good news about identifying that form of uh, paediatric glaucoma early is that if you lower the pressure very quickly, even with surgery, patients can regain or recover visual loss. Uh, what do you think, Andrew? Yeah, well, I mean, it's fortunate that glaucoma in childhood is is rare, um, but it can be very serious. And we worry more about people who are diagnosed glaucoma at a young age because we have to preserve their vision for the whole of their lifetime. And um, so although the prevalence of glaucoma is higher in older people, it's those perhaps who are diagnosed at a young age we worry more about. Um, and the most the mo most common form of childhood glaucoma is primary congenital glaucoma, which is it's a genetic uh, condition and, and it leads to abnormalities within the trabecular mesh where the drainage channel of the eye. Um, and the pressures in, in children who, have, who develop primary congenital glaucoma can be really, really high. And uh, because um, the t tissue of the eye is different in ch children, it's more elastic, the eye responds differently to raise pressure and the eye stretches and can become very large, as you mentioned, but thalamus, which means literally an ox's eye. And I remember seeing ch uh, children whose uh, parents had been told, doesn't, doesn't your child have lovely big eyes? And it turned out that was because the pressure was high and it led to enlargement of their eyes. Um, but um, 
the and the treatment of uh, of congenital glaucoma is is largely surgical. And I mean, the the good news is that um, with with a surgical procedure called a trabeculotomy um, or a goniotomy, and, and removing this abnormal tissue in the, in the drainage angle, it can can be very successful and and can actually cure the the high pressure in a in a large proportion of children. Um, but it's it's really important um, to to identify that. Um, children with with congenital glaucoma. I was wondering whether we can talk a little bit about patient-doctor relationships and can you tell us about the role of patient-ophthalmologist dialogue in glaucoma management? Yeah, sure. So I think most uh, ophthalmologists would agree that the patient-doctor dialogue is very important in any disease, but in particular in glaucoma. And that's because it's a chronic disease so that doctor-patient relationship becomes really incredibly important. And the dialogue that you have as the ophthalmologist talking to your patient about the best way that they could help in managing their own disease, because that's what you're relying on often when they're on medical treatment with eye drops, is vital. If you are going to maintain long-term control and the ability of the patient to carry on ensuring that they keep to, for example, regulating their lifestyle with with eye drops and checking that they are comfortable with their eye drops. And finally, if they are needing to go on to surgery, or even if you're going to go on to give them laser in, in the light trial, for example, then you need to gain their trust. And that dialogue is absolutely of paramount importance in that situation. Yeah, I think... Um- the communication aspect and is so important, I mean, important in any chronic disease, but particularly in glaucoma where patients are often asymptomatic. So it's really important we establish a good relationship with patients. And we need to remember that f- to successfully treat glaucoma, we need the patient to be actively involved in, in the treatment and in treatment decisions, but also in the use of medication and in adhering to follow up as well. Um, even patients who are treated with laser or surgery, we need to remind them that there's not a cure for glaucoma. Um, they still need to have regular monitoring, even though they might not be taking regular medication. Um, so informing patients about what glaucoma is and about the treatment options and the prognosis is really important. And another th- example, I think, of how um, the, the, the dialogue is important is in terms of when we prescribe eye drops, I think we often neglect to actually take the time to show patients how to use their eye drops. And many patients miss the eye completely when they try to put drops in, and that isn't always picked up. Um, sometimes patients are just prescribed a second eye drop because the first isn't working, when in fact, taking time to have a dialogue and discover that they're struggling to put drops in would be a far better um, um, intervention. Um, and patients have glaucoma for, for, for life, um, so it really requires us to reinforce the importance of regular monitoring. Um, another really important part of the dialogue is, I think, to reassure patients, because I think when we when we label somebody with having glaucoma, they often fear blindness, and, and sometimes their fear of blindness is disproportionate to the actual reality, the actual risk, because many patients with glaucoma progress very slowly and actually have very low risk of blindness. So we'd need to try to allay patients' fears, to try to reassure them um, and tell them it's actually good that we know that they have a condition because we can treat it effectively. The fact that it's a chronic condition can lead to 
difficulties when it comes to patient adherence to medications. Uh, really interesting to hear both your thoughts. What what can physicians do to improve that adherence to glaucoma medications? So I think actually um, Andrew has touched on this already and, and I just want to emphasise it because I think the first thing you need is to make sure you've been clear in explaining to anyone who's prescribed medication for the first time what the benefits and risks are of that medication. And that goes back to actually having that good dialogue. A good relationship with your patient, I think, is the first thing. I think that when patients and people nowadays increasingly recognize the fact that they need to be given information to patients, you get so many things on the internet now. It's very useful in being able to ensure the understanding of the regularity and the frequency of eye drops is followed properly, as in the fact that you want to make sure that the patient is responsible for themselves. So obviously, sometimes this isn't possible, but if that dialogue that you have with the patient about the importance of regular medication exists and the patient is able to talk to you about this, and if there is an issue that they feel comfortable in letting you know about it, that is incredibly important. As you move on to surgery in particular, that dialogue has to be even more prime in making sure that your patient understands the disease and what is being done to allow them to help control that disease. I suppose the other end of the spectrum is what is currently being put forward, which is to get round self-administration um, using the sustained methodologies for drug delivery. And so things like dissolvable ocular implants or other things coming through the pipeline where you can give three to six months worth of eye drops without having to rely on the patient instilling eye drops, but actually delivering it to the retina, usually at the moment through intracramoral, but maybe through intravitreal insulation. That's a way of, I suppose, getting out of uh, uh, patient adherence. Yeah, those new ways of delivering medications are very exciting. I think um, they'll really help us to break down that barrier of adherence. Um, it, it is a major challenge and it's a challenge for any type of chronic disease, but uh, I think particularly glaucoma where patients are asymptomatic and also there's that barrier of actually it's slightly more difficult to administer medication as an eye drop than to just take a tablet. And I think that also creates a barrier. And studies have shown that less than 50% of patients take glaucoma medications as recommended. And also that problem is compounded when we add in additional medication and we make the treatment regimen more complex. And there's lots of different reasons why people might be poorly adherent. Um, we've touched on the problems with drop administration, but also not knowing enough about the disease, the, the different health beliefs, um, that some patients have a lack of belief that they can actually control the outcome of the disease, they have a fatalistic sort of view of things. Um, people also are very busy and they might just forget um, or find it difficult to take medication with them when they're traveling or working shifts. Um, I think one of the challenges is how do we identify people who aren't adherent? And that's very difficult. Um, studies have looked at using pharmacy records to see whether people have enough medication to cover the number of days they require. And they've also used um, a special electronic um, dosing monitors, which attach to sort of eye drop bottles and, and measure how many times people press their bottle and, and uh, um, take a drop. Um, but that isn't really a very practical way to 
to uh, detect poor adherence in clinic and perhaps really the only feasible way is to ask patients just to ask them whether they're adherent or not and um there was a recent um, study actually which uh, identified a question that might be useful to ask and the question was over the past month what percentage of your eye drops do you think you took correctly so it's a very simple question and they found that um, the optimal cutoff was 85 percent so so if people asked um answered the question i, I take my drops less than 85 percent of the time there was a very high chance that they were they were actually quite poorly adherent and then in terms of the strategies to try and improve adherence, um, there there are very few studies that have actually shown any type of strategy to be effective. Um, but there are logical things we can do because we, we can try to simplify medication, try and make medications as tolerable as possible. Because many of these eye drops cause side effects that can make the eyes dry and red and cause problems with the ocular surface. And they also can cha cause um, cosmetic changes. So eye drops can make people's eyelashes grow longer and cause pigment changes around the eye and make the eye look slightly sunken as well. And, and it's typically the prostaglandin analogs that, that do this, which are the first line medication. So to try and reduce medication burden, there are drops that combine medications um, into fixed dose combinations. So they have, they have more than one medication in a single bottle. And having using these to try and simplify the treatment regimen, I think could, could be helpful in, in terms of improve, improving adherence. But maybe maybe these alternative methods of drug delivery will be the, the best answer. <laughs> oh, wonderful tips that I'm hoping our listeners can carry into their practice. I wanted to move on now to a different subset of glaucoma and wanted to ask what your current protocol is in treating patients with open angle glaucoma. So I think firstly, we um, follow the European glaucoma guidelines, the EGS guidelines. And the, the main thing here is first to make sure that your patient needs to be treated. So if they don't have optic nerve signs or they don't have visual field signs, do they have evidence that they have progressive disease? And when you are satisfied that they actually do have open angle glaucoma, and you've shown that through a thorough examination, including gonioscopy, OCT imaging, visual fields, and in some case, fundus photography, then this next step would be to start treatment. Um, and again, according to the EGS guidelines, most commonly it's monotherapy. That means treatment with one agent, one eye drop. And that monotherapy tends to be a prostaglandin analog. And then if that doesn't work, swapping it between classes of prostaglandins until you're satisfied that the IOP is well maintained. And only at the stage that you're not sure that the IOP is well maintained or that they have evidence of continuing progressive disease, either on visual field or OCT, that is when you would go on to adding the second line and then maybe the third line. Obviously, there is evidence now that we should consider giving laser treatment to patients, that is SLT, even at an earlier stage. And I think that is something that if you're able to do in your clinics, that would be another way of dealing with this. And then ultimately, if neither of these modalities work, moving on to surgery. Andrew, um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you've, you've outlined those three ways that we treat glaucoma, um, eye drops, laser, SLT, or, or surgery. And... Um, uh, traditionally, we would have started treatment with eye drops, but that really has been turned on its head lately with the, the landmark paper that was published in The Lancet back in 2019, the light, the light study. Uh, 
And um, in the light study, they randomized people who had just been diagnosed with glaucoma or with ocular hypertension um, to either having eye drops as their initial treatment or SLT as, as initial treatment. And um, those that had SLT did better. The, the laser was more effective and also found to be more cost effective as, a, as an initial treatment. Um, and they just published the six-year results of this study. And at six years, 70% of people who had laser first were still not needing any eye drops to control the pressure in their eye and, and control their glaucoma, which I think was much better than, than we expected and much better than when we had used SLT as a second or third line treatment. And SLT has advantages because it's generally painless. Um, it's fairly simple procedure to perform where we place a contact lens on the eye and we use the laser to laser the trabecular meshwork, the drainage channel to try and to try and open it. Um, but the laser does wear off um, and it may need to be repeated. Um, it, it is, though, very safe and, and has very few um, side effects. So, yeah, I agree that for, for people with ocular hypertension and for mild to moderate glaucoma, SLT is now is now recommended as a, as a first-line treatment. And then eye drops would typically be used as a second line, and um, prostaglandin analogs are, are generally the first-line first line treatment. And of the prostaglandin analogs, it was latanoprost that was the first uh, to, to be developed. And, and it's still actually latanoprost is the only prostaglandin analog that's been shown in a placebo-controlled trial to actually help protect and preserve patients' visual field. Um, so I think, I think it's, it has that slight advantage over some of the other medications with, with that very good quality trial from the UK glaucoma treatment study. Um, and then lastly, the, the third option is surgery. And in the past, we used that for people with advanced disease or people with very high risk of blindness. And, and um, still the best operation and the, the, the trusted operation is trabeculectomy. And that involves creating a small drainage channel in the eye to help lower the pressure. Unfortunately, it doesn't make the vision better. It's just about trying to stop it getting worse. Um, but um, also in some patients, we perform trabeculectomy as initial treatment. And there was a study called the Treatment of Advanced Glaucoma Study, which um, looked at people with advanced glaucoma and looked at treating them initially with drops or trabeculectomy. And they found trabeculectomy was a very reasonable first step and, and better at getting low pressures than the medication. And then lastly, there's, a, there's a, another group of surgical procedures generally uh, classified as under the umbrella term of minimally invasive glaucoma surgery or MIGS for short and that they're, they're typically used to reduce the medication burden and they, they're used more more early in disease often combined with cataract surgery and these MIGS procedures involve inserting stents or, or cutting the, 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 dr the drainage channel of the eye so there's a lot of treatment options now for glaucoma and I think that there needs, though, to be a different approach for every patient. And um, as we said, it, we, know we need to involve patients in the discussion of what treatment might be best for them and, and take an individual uh, approach. Yeah, as you said, every patient is different and requires a slightly different treatment approach. On that thought, how do you differentiate between patients who are likely to progress and those who are likely to remain stable? So um, again, I think this is using EGS guidelines, but also the best practice advice here in the UK 
In particular, one of the things that we try to do, and this obviously has been increasingly difficult with COVID having caused a few issues with assessment, is to establish right of the beginning of the disease, the target intraocular pressure based on the rate of visual field loss. And that rate of visual field loss or the rate of progression on your OCT should give you a hint as to the likelihood of your patient moving on to rapid progression. And that is what is currently available, but there are other things, obviously, in the future. Yeah, often I feel as a glaucoma specialist, we, you know, we, we're trying to look into a crystal ball and trying to predict the future, and it can be very challenging. Um, and patients have very different rates of progression. Um, some patients lose visual field very slowly, but there is a small proportion of patients who lose visual field very quickly. And of course, we have limited resources and we need to try and focus our resources on those that are at high risk, highest risk of, of losing vision. And one of the ways we can do that, one of the most important risk factors is, of course, the pressure inside the eye. If somebody has a pressure of 40, then they're clearly at very high risk that they're going to progress quickly. And if we can lower the pressure, um, then the risk is less. So the pressure is important, but individuals also respond very differently to pressure. Some people can withstand high pressure in their eye and others have very fragile optic nerves and can progress with quite low pressure. Um, other important factors that we can use are um, the presence of hemorrhages at the optic disc. Sometimes you see a small spot of blood on the optic nerve and that can be a very important indicator that that person might be going to lose vision in the future. It's also important when trying to predict the future to look back at what's happened in the past. Somebody who's lost a lot of vision at a fast rate is probably likely to continue doing so in the future. And Francesca mentioned OCT as well, which I think has become very, very useful. So with OCT, we can take highly detailed images of the optic nerve and the retina, and we can measure the thickness of the different structures in the eye and actually measure the change in thickness over time through serial measurements. So we can plot a rate of change. And if somebody is losing their nerve fiber layer very quickly, then they're likely to then lose visual field at a higher rate in the future. And then we can change treatment and see if the rate of change changes and slows. So it's really important that we risk stratify people appropriately and make sure that we're seeing those high risk patients in the appropriate setting, face to face, for example, because often lower risk patients are now seen by optometrists or in primary care potentially. And we use a lot of telemedicine as well to see low-risk patients in virtual clinics where patients come and have imaging with OCT and visual fields. And then they leave without seeing a clinician, but the results are then reviewed and the patient informed about the outcome later. And I think there's a great potential in settings like that using telemedicine to potentially use artificial intelligence in the future. So we have to make sure that we... Um, that the health services aren't completely overrun by low-risk patients, those that are probably not going to lose vision no matter what we do. Can you explain a little bit about the more about the surrogate markers that can predict progression of glaucoma? So um, surrogate markers at the moment, I suppose you would say that looking at the current rate of progression allows you to look at the future progression. But there isn't really another globally used surrogate marker that has been approved there are things, obviously, 
with OCT, which Andrew's mentioned, with the different methods of analysis, for example, looking at Brooks membrane opening and the correlation of that with the retinal nerve fiber layer quadrants or sectors around the disc, that's also been shown as a good way of predicting disease. However, I mean, I'm sure you realize that one of my babies is the dark technology, which is the detection of apoptosing retinal cells. And this is looking at disease activity at the back of the eye with an intravenous injection of an exon. So far in our publications, we've shown that in glaucoma, that a dark count which is elevated, in fact, the upper threshold is above 30, is predictive of future disease as shown by OCT at least 18 months down the line. But we're very much um, hoping that dark technology can be rolled out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're really keen on taking measurements as ophthalmologists and as clinicians in general. Um, we like to measure the pressure, the visual field, and measure the nerve fiber layer using OCT. But we, we do need to remember that these measurements are surrogates. And what really matters to patients is their vision, whether they can read, whether they can drive, uh, whether a reduction in their vision is likely to increase the likelihood of them falling. These are real-world patient-relevant outcomes. Um, but thankfully, the surrogate measures we take are related to those. And um, the, one of the advantages of surrogates is they change before some of these real-world measures change. We don't really want to wait and see if a patient reaches one of these real-world outcomes. So the val there's a real value in using surrogate measures. Um, and of course, we need to be careful, though, because it's conceivable that treatment might, for instance, lower pressure, but it could potentially increase the rate of visual field loss. Um, so there might be treatments that don't lower pressure, but reduce the risk of field loss as well. So, for example, neuroprotective treatments, neuroprotective treatments um, might not lower pressure, but could help preserve vision. And if we're only measuring the surrogate of pressure, we won't be able to show these work well. And I think that's where these new technologies like DARK are so exciting because they, they'll be very useful, I think, for looking at the outcomes of neuroprotective treatments. Could you tell us about the circadian variation in IOP, Professor Cordero? Sure. So the diurnal variation in IP is something that we really haven't got a good grip on as the ability to do 24 IOP monitoring is really quite reduced in, in this country. What we all tend to do, knowing normally that pressure is highest in the morning, usually at eight o'clock or so, is we will encourage patients to have a clinic um, around that sort of diurnal time so that they can have pressures in a short day measured every two hours from eight o'clock until four o'clock during normal office working hours. And we use that to help us in the individualizing of the management of the patient. Now, one of the things that I'm happy about is that, in fact, the water drinking test has been introduced, and it's a procedure that my team are using already at the Western Eye. It was introduced by um, Remo Susano in Brazil, and I think it has been a potentially an extremely good way of not having to rely on diurnal IOP measuring because of its predictive power in terms of identifying what the peak pressure um, can be and the fact that there is correlation of that with the water drinking test and the highest or maximal diurnal IOP. I don't know if you've been using that, Andrew. 
I haven't actually. I'd like to know more about it. Um, how 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 many how much water do they drink? It's about two liters, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in one go, yeah. That's that would be so useful because um, no, in the past we. Um, we could have patients sit in the hospital all day having their pressure checked, um, but it was just not very convenient. And particularly with COVID, we really didn't want people sitting in the clinic all day. So I think that's a really interesting alternative way of exploring the, the maximal diurnal intraocular pressure. Yeah, so I think um, when we when we measure pressure, you know, we, we typically just measure it in the clinic. Um, and we take pressure measurements quite infrequently. And pressure... Um, eye pressure, light blood pressure is very dynamic. So when we're measuring it just once, maybe once every six months, we're getting a snapshot of something. We're not getting the full picture. The intraocular pressure fluctuates over minutes, seconds, and over long, the longer term as well, over weeks and months. And we really don't fully capture that. We're not sure, though, whether the fluctuation in pressure actually really matters and whether, whether it provides any additional information regarding risk of glaucoma or risk of progression. Um, and one of the other problems about fluctuation, though, is it can make it more difficult to determine whether we've actually achieved a therapeutic effect with our treatment. If we take a single pressure measurement and then we change treatment and then we take another pressure measurement, we actually need a change of about seven millimeters of mercury, which is a very large amount to have a 95 percent certainty that our treatments worked. So we could take multiple measurements before and after we change treatment to try and lower that, um, that absolute change that's required. But we actually need about eight measurements before and after treatment to reduce that change to just two millimeters of mercury. So even if the fluctuation in pressure isn't actually a risk factor for progression, which we're not sure about yet, I think having more measurements could be very useful in determining whether treatment's working. And there are different ways we could do that. One way would be bringing patients to the hospital more often. But recently, there, there are now ways that we can check pressure at home using home monitoring devices um, where we could obtain far greater number of pressure measurements. And one thing we've been doing is be, we've been loaning patients a home monitoring device, very much like a home blood pressure machine that allows them to take measurements of their pressure at home. I was wondering, could you tell us the meaning of optic nerve neuroprotection and what the current options for optic nerve neuroprotection are, Professor Cadero? Yeah, sure. sure. So in the truest sense, uh, when you're describing neuroprotection, you mean a treatment that prevents nerve cells dying. And the idea of optic nerve protection has been along for a very, very long time, probably about 20 years, borrowing a lot of targets that exist in neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Unfortunately, despite years of investigating potential neuroprotections, only two have yet reached phase three clinical trials. One of them is Mementine. That is the drug that was originally approved by the FDA for Alzheimer's disease. It was then licensed by the pharmaceutical companies on a 2000 patient trial with high, low and placebo doses of memantine. Unfortunately, that trial was very long, very expensive and did not show any success on the uh, primary endpoint. So it did pull a lot of bad feeling about neuroprotection in the glaucoma community. 
The second trial was the Logitz trial, and this is a trial where bromonidine was given um, against Timolol. Now, that trial did show by the primary endpoint, which was a reduction in the visual field progression, that bromonidine did achieve its target. But the problem was there were issues with the design of that trial, especially the fact that bromonidine caused a red eye due to intolerance in at least 30% of patients. And that meant there was around a 20% dropout rate from the trial, suggesting maybe that we weren't looking at an overall population in terms of effects of bromonidine. So I think, unfortunately, neither of these trials were fully conclusive, although I believe the best is yet to come. So I think that what we've learned over the last years is that we need better biomarkers. We need better endpoints. And obviously, I'm very much hoping that DARK will be useful in identifying potential neuroprotectants. And that is one of the focuses of my research group. Andrew. Yeah, so I... I think the neuroprotection is very, very interesting. And at the moment, the only proven neuroprotective treatment we have for glaucoma is lowering intraocular pressure. And that does prevent retinal ganglion cell death. But we have a sizable proportion of people who still progress despite pressure reduction. The optic nerve and the retina require a huge amount of energy to function. And because of this, they rely on a very high density of mitochondria, which are these the energy-producing organelles within the body. So mitochondrial dysfunction can contribute towards glaucoma. And there's a lot of interest in the use of neuroprotective agents that might boost mitochondrial function. An interesting potential treatment is nicotinamide, which is a type of vitamin B3, and this can help maintain mitochondrial function. There's a study that has shown that people with glaucoma tend to have reduced plasma blood levels of nicotinamide compared to controls. And a study from Jonathan Croston in Australia um, showed over a relatively short period of time that oral supplements of nicotinamide could actually boost optic nerve function. And there's currently a couple of very large randomized control trials recruiting to evaluate the potential use of nicotinamide as a neuroprotective treatment for glaucoma. Then there are other potential neuroprotective agents of interest, like antioxidants such as coenzyme Q10. And for many years, people have suggested that ginkgo biloba might be a neuroprotective agent. But there's still not convincing evidence of efficacy for this. And of course, ginkgo in particular can cause blood thinning and the propensity for bleeding, particularly if it's combined with anticoagulants. But in general, neuroprotective treatments are very exciting and they provide a great hope for glaucoma. Hopefully we'll have treatments that don't just rely on lowering intraocular pressure and potentially we might have treatments in the future that could actually help improve and restore the vision that's lost from glaucoma. So hopefully within the next decade we will have treatments that go beyond pressure lowering. Professor Cordero, Dr. Tatham, thank you both so much for your time today and for sharing your insights and expertise on glaucoma. It's been an incredibly enlightening discussion and one that I'm sure will benefit many HCPs. We've covered so many different areas within the field of glaucoma there. And I I just wanted to ask you before we finish, what would be the key take-homes that you would like the listeners, the the healthcare professionals that have listened today to to take home with them and take into their practice moving forward? Um, I'll start with you, Professor Cordero. 
So I think it would be that there is hope. We've already talked about a number of advances in the field of glaucoma that have been coming through in the last few years. I think the the fact that there are newer treatments coming through, newer endpoints, all of that I see as being very positive reinforcement that things in the field are changing and that there is a need for things to change, be it, you know, in terms of how uh, we monitor disease, detect it and identify it, and finally treat it. So um, my my thing to really take home for, for everybody would be that there is hope and there is progress in the field. Yeah, glaucoma is an exciting field at the moment with all of these um, developments. Um, I think um, my, just to add to that, my, my additional take-home message would be that um, no matter if you're a healthcare professional, no matter what your role is, even if you're not working within eye care, I think you, you can have an important role to play in reducing the the impact of glaucoma, because um, we've we've discussed how one of the major risk factors for blindness is late presentation. So I think all of us can have a role to play in, in increasing awareness of glaucoma within the community in general, um, in encouraging people to have regular eye health checks, even if they're asymptomatic. And also, I think there's a role to play in boosting adherence. You know, if, if you see somebody who is prescribed a glaucoma medication, I think there's a, there's, there's a, a value in just asking patients whether they're how they're getting on with their glaucoma medications and so no matter what what, what role you have in healthcare i think that you, you you can you can help improve glaucoma management and and actually could i just add to that because i think andrew's just brought up a really important point which is that our health system is going to rely increasingly on healthcare professionals um and their role in glaucoma is going to be increasingly important. All the new tools that are coming in probably will be best looked after or be best actually um, performed in the community, uh, which is where the HCP becomes almost integral to the system and making sure disease is well treated. I'm sure you agree with that, Andrew. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think that's it's through involving other healthcare professionals that as glaucoma specialists, we can concentrate on that small proportion of patients who are at highest risk of visual loss. Thank you both so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that concludes today's discussion. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now.